Welcome to 33 Tangents, a podcast discussing a wide variety of topics from digital analytics to working remotely to current happenings in business and technology. Your hosts, Jason Thompson, John Narong, and myself, Jim Driscoll, all live in different areas of the world, but work together in the same company. Our regular day-to-day conversations often go off in various directions, and the goal of this podcast is to share our ideas and find new ways to engage with others. All right. So joining us today is Randy Zwitch. Uh, he's a senior developer advocate at MapD. And before we really you know, get started, I'd like to take a minute to note that while Randy and I live about 10 minutes apart from each other, you know, right now we're, we're nowhere near being in the same room, let alone the same continent. Uh, I'm in the UK visiting a client. Um, so if that weren't the case, we'd probably be sitting down at like a, a Starbucks or a Panera somewhere and, and then dialing Jason in. Um, so just a fun little thing, you know, when we finally get this one on the calendar, I'm out of the country. Um, but th- that being said, uh, Randy and Jason have been working together uh, specifically to analyze the air quality of the state of Utah using data that's published by, uh, by the state. And I think this project gives us a great opportunity to talk about collaboration from multiple uh, perspectives. But before we get there, Randy, can you tell us a little bit more about MAPD and your role there? Sure. So, uh, yeah, so thanks for that intro, Jim. Uh, if we were meeting in person, I guess I'd have to be wearing pants, but uh, working from hey home yo. has its benefits. <laughs> um, no, but so, yeah, so as Jim said, um, my, my title is Senior Developer Advocate at MAPD. And before I get into sort of what I do, MAPD is a um, GPU accelerated analytics platform. So um, what does that mean? So a lot of people have used um, all sorts of different databases in their career. You know, uh, open source ones like Postgres or MySQL. Um, on the corporate side, you might have Oracle, Teradata, maybe SQL Server. And MapD um, is really trying to target something different than all the other databases that I've, I've listed. And so MapD... Um, was built by our founder um, from the ground up to really leverage the speed and the analytics capabilities of of GPUs. And so GPUs, uh, also known as video cards uh, to some people, um, originally started out to process um, the the pictures that go on the screen uh, of your computer. Um, But as it turns out, you know, they're really well suited for doing math as well. And so MapD um, is built in such a way to to leverage all of the massive parallelism uh, that you get from graphics cards, which leads to uh, sub-second query times. And so what MAPD is really trying to do is bridge that gap from large data, um, but poor interactivity, or using really small data sets and and having it be interactive. We're trying to actually do both. And so um, this project that I'm working on with Jason is actually relatively small by MAPD standards, um, but it's still in the millions of rows and probably hundreds of millions of data points. And so, um, yeah, hopefully that explains a little bit what MapD is. Um, in terms of what I do at MapD is, you know, as we, we keep alluding to here um, with, with this project, is, is really just working with people um, in the community and, and understanding 
just you know how, how would we improve MapD as a product? What are our community members doing? How can I inspire other people? And so you know part of that is is doing podcasts like this, um, writing blog posts, giving talks. Um, so you know that's my role at MapD. It's uh, tremendously fun, um, and it brings me to talking with you guys today. And uh, you you work remote, right? Yes. So I work um, out of my house. Um, and I travel, I don't know, maybe every other month or so. It really depends on the different conference schedules. Cool. Is the, what, can you kind of talk about, cause we've never really talked about this and it's odd that this is the first time we're kind of having this conversation, but can you talk a little bit about like the structure of the company? Are, are most of your coworkers remote or are they in the office? How, how is that structured? Um, so, so MapD does have uh, a decent remote presence, um, but most workers are in the, the San Francisco Bay Area. And so the main headquarters is in the financial district of San Francisco, um, which I actually just got back from. Um, and then there's some other places um, that people work remotely in uh, California. And then, you know, between the sales teams that have different regions around the United States and around the world, um, some of the technical folks, I know we have a handful of people in Europe. Uh, I'm here on the East Coast. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, being such a, a young company, um, remote hasn't been as much of an impediment because people have already um, experienced that, you know, through other tech companies. And we don't really have as much of an ingrained culture of, you know, butts in the seat type of type of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that's very cool. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to see the work you're, you're doing there and very excited about this project and good exposure to learn more about what we can do with, with MapD. Um, so as far as what we've done with this project, I I've had a long interest with air quality, uh, specifically in, in Utah, we have a, a unique geography that makes air quality very challenging for us. And, uh, historically, it's been uh, a fairly big problem in the winter. So Utah, if you're not familiar with the geography, is is kind of like we, we live in valleys that are bowls uh, and we're surrounded on all sides by mountains. And in the winter, we have what's called an inversion. And that forces all of the bad air and particulates and uh, other things that you don't want to be breathing in down into the valleys while up high at the ski resorts, it's beautiful and, and clear. And, and there's some amazing photos out there and I'll, I'll link one up in, in the show notes here, but you can, you can look out from a top of a mountain and just see clouds, like an ocean of clouds and it looks beautiful, but the air is, is fairly dirty. Recently it's become almost a year round problem. So as we've, uh, kind of changed our climate a bit and we're getting less rainfall, uh, hotter and drier summers, we're having bigger, um, wildfire seasons and this year has been particularly bad so typically we get a break in the summer where the air quality is a bit cleaner this year it smells like a campfire out there um and so it's it's worse than most winter days so anyway a long way of saying i've i've had an interest in air quality and at one point in time i stumbled across an open data set provided by the epa that provides all of the 
data collected from monitoring stations for for different states. And I, I Randy could probably tell us how many there are. I, I can't remember off the top of my head uh, that we're pulling from uh, from Utah. And I've been doing some stuff in Python just to teach myself a bit more about Python and, and do it on a project that I was interested in. And at some point, Randy reached out to me and said, hey, this might be a good project for us to collaborate on. We can use MapD to, to help really massage the data, get it in the form that we need, and then use the power of the platform to help visualize and create interactive elements that we can really further analyze the data. So intro of, of kind of how we, we've got here. Uh, where are we at, Randy, with the project? We're about halfway through. We've kind of pulled the data. We're, we're pulling it into MapD. Where are we at now? Well, where we're at is me being behind. <laughs> well, I didn't want. I wasn't going to call you out. Um, no, where we are is is um, you know this project has has taken I, I think a similar path to most analytics projects where um, a good sixty to eighty percent of the work is data cleaning, data loading, you know, getting things the way that you want, and so. Um, Jason and I had originally planned to do maybe like five or six blog posts. Um, the, we've done three so far, so, you know, somewhere between, you know, 60% completed. And we've really only talked about, you know, how we clean the data, how we assigned, um, air quality stations to the Utah parcel data. And so, you know, the, the next blog post that comes out, hopefully this week, um, we'll, we'll talk about actually how to build a, a dashboard, um, in MapD so that you get all the interactive features, um, with the real-time cross-filtering. And, and hopefully what we'll start to see there is, you know, the weather patterns that Jason talked about where um, in, in these sort of valley areas, um, we would expect to see, you know, higher pollution ratings. And, you know, what I'm hoping to see from a, a data perspective um, is a pretty tight circle um, bounded by those mountains. And I, I think when, you know, we start to see that, we'll start to see some interesting things um, you know, I think we measure or the EPA measures and we pulled in uh, six different measurements of air quality from, uh, I think it's ozone, uh, particulate matter, um, what, nitrogen. Uh, it doesn't matter. Yeah. We'll, we can go over that in detail on the post. But ultimately, it will be interesting to see that, you know, if if particulate matter is really high in this sort of section, you know, we can use that cross filtering ability on time to look at the other um, pollutants and see, you know, is is there um, sort of joint pollution days? Are they, um, you know, are there seasons around the specific uh, pollutants? Um, so I, I think it'd be really interesting to, to sort of see the, the spatio-temporal type of um, analysis and really get to play around with that. Yeah, agreed. So you brought up a couple things that I want to follow up on. Um, one, I'll table um, that we can follow up on after the first topic, but that one will be, I want to talk a little bit about the the parcel data that you brought in and the ability to get down to an individual parcel, which I think is is really fascinating. But the first point that I want to touch on that you brought up, I think is, is really important. And that is the time spent in prepping the data, prepping for analysis. It's, it's something that I think a lot about. And I, I mentioned this on Twitter about a year ago that I spend probably 70% of my time just understanding and getting the data in a format that I can actually start to do analysis on um, what we traditionally call analysis. I think the whole process is analysis. And uh, one of the, one of the cloud vendors, not Adobe, not Google, um, 
shot back at me and said how sad that was that I was spending so much time doing that. And if I would use a solution like theirs, then I could jump right into doing an analysis. And, you know, I'd like for you to follow up on that because this, I think we've, we've, we ran into this early on in that um, whether it was understanding the data, you know, just trying to understand like, how does this fit in? How does this make sense? Questioning what the data looks like, rolling it up into the right levels for us to take action on. It took a tremendous amount of, of work. And, you know, I'd spent quite a bit of time. I'm by no expert. Uh, I'm by no means an expert on, on air quality, but I've spent quite a bit of time with the data and still we needed a couple of weeks just to understand what the data was before we can jump in. Why do you think it is in the digital space? We we've kind of, ignored that fact or we've looked to the vendors that are collecting our data and providing our data to do that all for us and is that a good or a bad thing wow that's what's that like six that's like six questions um yeah you can unpack all that sure so um we'll go more generic first i mean yeah I, i would agree with you that you know vendors selling solutions for things and 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 implying they're too automated is really a problem. I mean, there's no way around understanding what the data represents. Um, no, no automated solution is really going to be able to tell you that the data is correct or it's structured correctly. It's really as you kind of go through a, a project and sort of understand what you're trying to do. Um, you know, for instance, you know, specific to our project, Jason returned the data to me in a very normalized data form, which was great. You know, it, it, some people, I guess, call it tidy if you're in the R community. Um, but, but really, you know, stacking up, um, having one column of measurements and then having, um, you know, tall instead of wide. Well, as it turns out, that works great for just um, doing a data transfer uh, because there's only a handful of columns to import into your database. But ultimately, because we want to look at each of the, um, pollutants separately, and depending, you know, this is you know slightly MAPD specific. Um, I actually need to rotate the, the data to make it wide, and so I mean, just things like that. No, no automated tool is going to be able to um, provide that level of flexibility. Um, and you know, if you're not doing some of this work yourself, um, I, I think you're really limiting what types of questions you're going to be able to answer. Yeah, totally agree. Um, what are you, what are your thoughts on just spending your time, even if it isn't structuring the data? Again, one of the things that we looked at, and I think we saw gaps in the data where we were looking at um, different different reporting stations had different gaps, and I think you called it out. And we, I said, is this a problem with the data collection or the data? And I started looking into it, and then I started looking at geography, and I started wondering, man, are these like really remote locations that we can't get access to in the winter? But there's a whole host of things that you have to kind of do beforehand and just to orient yourself to the data. And even if you're an expert in the field with the data you're analyzing, it seems like we often skip that step and want to jump right to visualizing and storytelling, or is it okay to do that? I mean, is that a way of helping highlight where we may have gaps or deficiencies in the data where we need to learn more? Personally, I I always like to do that. Um, Even though I do a fair bit of machine learning and try and make things as automated as possible, um, I'm trying to automate the tedium, not automate the uh, understanding, if that makes sense. And so, you know, I didn't really understand this data set until I plotted the data 
Um, and the, the picture is actually in the, the third blog post, the, the one that I wrote, um, where, which shows all the parcels in Utah. And then it shows with red dots where the stations actually are. When I first started with this, I would have presumed that there would have been a more grid-like pattern. If, if you want to measure air quality around the, the, uh, all of Utah, well, you know, I don't know, maybe you space them every 50 miles you know, and you create a grid. But as it turns out, they did probably the more sensible thing from an urban planning standpoint is they put all the stations where people live. So you know, just something like that. I mean, me not being an expert and just using this dumb assumption that you know, you would pool the air quality, you know, equally across Utah, whereas once you saw the plot and go, right, everybody lives in the Salt Lake area, they live in the Provo area. And so all of the air quality stations are where people live. And yeah. so, I mean, it's just things like that where, you know, no tool is going to be able to tell you that, um, you know, but as soon as I looked at it, it was so blatantly obvious to me um, what was going on. And so, I, you know, I'm always going to be a proponent of, of people actually looking at the data and thinking about what they want to do before actually trying to think about, you know, what's interesting or start to really dig in. Yeah, no, that's great advice. And I think that's a good segue. Do you want to talk a little bit about what we're hoping to accomplish or, or visualize from the parcel perspective and, and how does a solution like MapD help us do some of that really granular analysis down to a specific parcel? Sure. So, one of the things when I started out this project, um, contrary to my prior evidence, you know, when I kick, or my prior recommendation is that when I started this off, I was actually looking for a way to test the geospatial capabilities in MapD. And so when I first approached Jason about this, these features weren't actually public in, in a public release. And so I was trying to think of, you know, what are an interesting way to sort of go through and test all of this functionality. And so with the EPA data, um, there's something like 47 specific air quality stations, and they do have lat, uh, latitude and longitude uh, assigned to them. Um, but what's more interesting to me is really how it affects the people in Utah. So the, again, we talked about the, the stations are relatively where the people are, but we can actually do a calculation and say, for every parcel of data that we have, or every parcel that's located in Utah, since we have a record of, of where these places are and we have them uh, as polygons, we can actually assign an air quality station to the polygon. And once we do that, now we can start to see, you know, are certain neighborhoods more affected? Um, are, is the, um, the value of the land actually impacted depending on where you are? Um, I think this is going to be a little bit murky only because everybody lives where the pollution sort of is. Um, so we're going to get stuck where nobody lives and there's no air quality station. The, the value of the land is actually going to be recorded as low, even though it, it could be the cleaner areas. Um, and so that might be inverse. But nevertheless, um, you know, going through this, really trying to understand, you know, once once we know um we take all this public record data for the parcels and then we, you know, marry it to the, the readings that the EPA has. Now we can really understand, um, you know, air, you know, we can plot, you know, value by poor air quality days and, you know, do, do, um, you know, correlations like that. And so I, I think, um, you know, that's a, a really powerful thing when you can, when you can put two data sources together, um, 
and, and understand things in a way that you wouldn't be able to understand uh, looking at each of them separately. Yeah, and I'm really excited to to look at that. And and within the MapD platform, I've just been playing around a little bit with the dashboard that you set up. Uh, it looks like there's also the ability to have a lot of interactivity as well. Um, it, can you kind of talk about what the vision is behind the the visual layer of MapD as far as you know what are you really wanting to have users use it for is it is it meant to be a static dashboard are you really wanting it to be an interactive thing where people can really play with the data what's the what's the vision behind that and what do you hope to accomplish with that yeah the the vision for immerse um you know is actually can can be taken from the name immerse we want people to be immersed in their data to be able to actually go in and answer questions so quickly that it's you know as if they're playing with a video game or virtual reality where you're saying, oh, I'm interested in you know my neighborhood. Like I don't know if you if you actually did this, Jason, or if you typed in your address, but the the map would actually zoom to center your address, and then you could zoom outwards. You could just pick your parcel if you wanted to, and you know some of these sound sort of like um, excessive features until you realize that you know being able to go down to as granular a level as possible or to answer questions as fast as you can think of them, it really changes how you go about doing analysis. And so that's really what Immerse is looking to do is is to bridge, you know, as I said, both of those areas of really granular, you know, big data, you know, however you define that, um, but also that interactivity. If you're writing a query and it takes two seconds, yeah, I mean, that's not that long, you know, relatively speaking. But once you can do that in... uh, you know, in a visual way where you can just slide a bar and and actually change the time period, or you can click on a handful of parcels, or um, you can filter by just, um, you know, house value or or any of those sorts of things. Once it gets to be that interactive, I found that I really, really think about questions differently. And so that's really what we're trying to do is we're not really trying to, um, you know, displace other, you know, market vendors of of dashboarding tools. I mean, it's good. It's good if people would choose us over sort of the incumbents, but it's not really to take on, you know, Power BI or or some solution like that where people are doing static reporting. It's really more of trying to bring that interactive JavaScript visualization, um, sort of like your D3 and and Vega um, in, in JavaScript, trying to bring that towards a more automated experience where you can drag your tiles in, you can build your dashboard, and then all the cells react to each other um, in, in real time and really giving you the ability to, to drill down to, you know, one record, um, you know, in the, if your parcel, your house example, you can drill down on one record or you can, you know, do neighborhoods and things like that. And so that's what we're really trying to bring is, is make it easier to, to have those fully interactive um, analytics uh, reports at your fingertips, while at the same time, you know, giving you the ability to to drill down as as granular as you can. Yeah, and that's that's one of the things I'm really excited to play with because I I really do like that uh, that interactive ability, and I've I've played around with a lot of libraries in R and Python, and I know what I want it to do and look like, but I just don't have the programming muscle to to get it there. So leveraging a solution like MapD that has taken a lot of that configuration and put it behind the scenes and I can drag and drop data elements onto it um, is a is a very promising thing for for someone like me um, that wants to do it 
could probably figure it out, but someone else has already done it for me and, and make it a lot easier. Um, really, really cool aspect of the tool. Uh, so I want to I want to switch gears a little bit and talk more in general about just collaboration. We can talk about collaborating on this project, but I'm sure you're working with a lot of developers in your community. I see a lot of the content that your company is putting out. They're very interested in working with open data sets and and developers that have data to to get the word out there. You're working from home most of the time and your rest of your company is for the most part in the Bay Area. These developers are all over the place. It's not feasible for you to go and sit down with them every time you're not coming to hang out with me in Utah, though I would enjoy that to work on this project. Can you talk a little bit and and just for fairness, the reason I'm asking this is that I often get pushback when it comes to collaboration and, and remote. Um, I've obviously developed a little bit of a reputation of being very pro remote. Some people have actually called my stance very annoying that I'm so pro remote. But one of the pushbacks I get is I would love to go remote. I would love to offer our employees a chance to go remote. But I fear that we would lose the ability to collaborate. We can really only have strong collaboration if we're in the same conference room together. And and I don't want to dismiss that. That that may be true. But you know, from your role, it's not feasible to to do that with every person that you want to collaborate with. Can you talk about your experience collaborating with people remotely, what the challenges are and, and what it takes to be successful doing topics like this or doing projects like this in a remote capacity? Sure. So, I mean, for me, I've worked at a lot of very large companies um, where they have very much been like, you know, you get in at you know nine o'clock and you leave at five o'clock. And the, the thing about the really rigid cultures like that is, is people find their own ways to waste time. They find their own ways to build their own space. And by that, I mean, I, I used to work at a bank and we would take, you know, hour lunches, 90 minute lunches, uh, you know, you go out to a restaurant and, and basically what you do is you take a, well, everyone's in the same office, you know, type of opinion. And the first thing you do is you get two of your buddies and you leave. And so, you know, right away, you have this situation where, you know, with the open plan office or, or whatever else that you have, you're trying to promote collaboration. And the first thing that people want to do is leave. They want some private space to themselves where they can talk, where they can breathe. And so, you know, what are you really promoting when you have that? And so the flip side of this, me working remotely now is um, one, having management that, that really understands how knowledge work is produced and second, you know, a high level of trust. And so, you know, it works out for me because I'm in Philadelphia and most of the people are in California. So I get the eight to noon timeframe to myself, East coast, uh, because they're still sleeping. Um, but at the same time, the hardest thing that we have is really coordinating time schedules. And so for me, I'm very much an introverted person. Um, all these sort of public speaking and, and podcasts notwithstanding. Um, and so for me, it's very natural to communicate in a written form and be very asynchronous in that way. And so I've always taken pride in being very precise about what I'm going to write in an email or, you know, staying in touch for Slack. Um, so many of my collaboration opportunities actually start with Twitter um, just because, you know, people, when people see what you're, what you're into and what you're about and especially not in a selling capacity, um, they realize like, oh, Randy really does do these things. He's not just, you know, kind of 
going to conferences and, and just a professional speaker. You know, I actually do fool around GPUs, you know, fool around computer languages and things like that. And so you're, you're constantly getting an opportunity to, to show yourself uh, as you actually are as an individual. And then right there, I mean, people will either gravitate towards that or they won't. And so I think a lot of the, the opportunities that I have are very much with like-minded people as, such as myself. Like there hasn't been anybody who's really like, I need you to come on site because we're doing X, Y, and Z. It's really more like, hey, can we have a video call or, you know, can we, you know, just have a constant Slack chat uh, open? And, you know, in that sense, I, I think we actually communicate more and there's just less frivolous communication. Yeah. Whereas I think when you, when, you, when you force people to be in an office, you start getting that going out to eat culture or the, uh, you know, walking around in the hallways and, and sort of sneaking around. You know, whereas working at home, I, I don't even try to um, imply that I'm working, you know, during, quote, work hours. I'll, I'll go do my laundry. I actually got a, a package full of guitar stuff just, you know, just before this podcast. So I'll probably go play guitar in a little while. You know, and that's fine. And then if I'm working at eight o'clock tonight because that's when I'm motivated, you know, that's yeah. fine too. And so it's really sort of the thing of people really want control um, and they feel like they don't get it with remote. But I sort of see it the other way in that the only thing you're doing it, it, with good communication, really the only thing you're doing is, is talking about work. And so you have ultimate control about the deliverables because everybody's writing things down or they're having video conferences or they're setting specific times, specific goals, milestones in the project. And so to me, you know, there's actually more control with remote, not less. Yeah, I, I agree. Having freedom, flexibility and control over your day is something that we uh, really take um, or we put a lot of importance in. And I think having that remote aspects, remote aspect is the ultimate in, in control to your point. We don't set really any boundaries other than the expectations of what the deliverables are. And we trust our people to, to get it done within that, that framework. And to me, that, that was always the interesting thing when I read these thought pieces on LinkedIn, where they say, well, if we allow them to work from home, they're going to be doing their laundry. Well, yeah, we, we are, we're doing our laundry. We're, we're running to our kids soccer game in the park where, you know, that's, that's the freedom that we have but we're still getting the work done and and it's kind of flipping that script and it's back to like the early 2000s what was the whole methodology about just you know just getting stuff done i can't remember what the what the the buzzword for it was but it was just about getting stuff done and somehow we forgot that that really that's what we're there to do we're not there to really count the hours our our asses are in in the seats but but we forgot about that but nonetheless um what, what about, so, so communication, I think definitely to your point, I think we're more focused on it. We actually go out of our way to uh, sometimes over communicate. What about the notion of like, how do we do brainstorming? So, you know, let's take this project for, for example, as my two kids are fighting with each other, chasing down the hall. See, that's, that's one of the great parts of working from home. Um, what, 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 or would be your recommendations for things like how do we do brainstorming or whiteboarding sessions? You know, we, we need to get together and think about a new project we're working on and that's really difficult to do a remote. So we need to have everybody together so we can whiteboard. Can we, can you effectively do that remote? You know, obviously this is a smaller project, but how did we overcome that? The, the distance between us to be able to kickstart this project. 
Yeah, I mean, I think the you know what's really funny is that you know I've known Jason for for quite some years now, and we actually communicated uh, via uh, Twitter direct message. It turned out to be the the best channel for us because we're we're always both on Twitter, and so we see the notification. And you know, Twitter's interesting in that case that it also if you know makes you think about what you're saying because you only get your 280 characters or whatever you get. And so in that sense, it's sort of like, you know, sending off these, these bullets of, Hey, you know, are you working on this? Or, Hey, is this going to be done Monday? Or, you know, Hey, Randy, you're late, you know, all those sorts of things. Um, you know, th- those short bursts and, and since it, you know, that was something that worked for both of us, it was really easy to kind of go back and forth and say, Hey, you know, I'm looking at this data right now it doesn't look right. So Jason, maybe you check your code and, and then you did that and you came to me and said, oh, it seems right to me. And then I realized that I made an error. And so, you know, those don't take 20 minute meetings. We don't have to, you know, jump on a phone call as everybody likes to say, um, you know, to discuss how you might've done it wrong. You can just say, Hey, you know, I'm seeing something weird. Can you check? Perfect. Took me 10 seconds to write it. You know, you see it whenever you see it, which is again, one of those great things about remote you know, none of this is really urgent, you know, our collaboration here. And so if you see it two hours later, great. If you're getting a taco with your kids, cool. You know, hey, I'll, I'll look at this when I get home. You know, those just one-off messages are you know, Yeah, and you, and you bring up a good point. I've, I've had the opportunity to work with a couple companies that have tried to uh, put a remote program in place, either full-time or part-time. And one of the feedback items they gave me is that the collaboration was broken. And when I looked at their processes, I saw that they had a very rigid way in which they communicated. And I think they were trying to be proactive about it. They were trying to think through all of the problems with communication and they thought, okay, if we come up with a a structure for how to do all these things, it will work best. But it ultimately failed because people need to find what works best for them. It's, It's like in the office, you don't necessarily schedule how everything works. You know, you may grab a conference room, you may go out to eat, you may have a hallway conversation, but it's not prescribed to you how you collaborate. Yet when you go remote, they're thinking, okay, we need to help provide them more structure. So we'll give them this process. And if it doesn't work, then it's a, it's a failure. And I love that example that we just organically went to Twitter direct message, but for someone else, it may be Slack for someone else. It may be doing some video calls via Skype. I think you have to be open to be flexible to find what works not only for you, but for the the team that's coming together for any specific collaboration. Yeah. And, and so yeah, I mean, organic is really the best word for it. It was just, it evolved how it evolved. And I mean, like I said, you know, we've known each other for so long, it's sort of different. But even with the the, the more formal collaborations that I have, um, you know, with different universities or, or different companies, um, the, the email portion of it seems to work very well, um, just because people aren't, you know, they're not copying you on every email like you do in an office where, you, you know, sort of those bigger bigger company cultures where everybody wants to cover their ass and, you know, Oh, did you see my, you know, I CC'd you on this and I did this over here. You know, all of our communication is very um, tactical saying, okay, well, we have this goal of, of doing this and we need to do this by this date and this by this date. And, you know, every email that comes in is, is really a question. It's something that does need to be followed up on, you know, so you have an efficiency in that sense where, I do read my email because the only emails I get are things that I really actually need to see. And, you know, so I I think remote actually gives you this discipline of knowing that you can't waste everyone's time 
you know, you, you can't just assume that you're going to meet with somebody. And at the same time, you're saying, okay, well, if I'm going to write something to you, I might as well take the time to think about it. You know, think, write out a few scenarios, you know, explicitly write what my goal is or, or what I need from you. And so for me, it, it works very well. You know, there's a written sort of written copy of, of everything you're trying to do. Um, and, you know, people are really sort of direct and explicit about it because you don't have that, that awkward in between of, you know, how was your weekend? I mean, you can, I mean, there's, there's nothing preventing you obviously from, from having a friendly relationship. Yeah. Um, but I, I tend to see as a remote worker, you know, every message that comes to me is pretty much, Hey, either you need to know this or I need you to do something. Um, which works yeah, perfectly. It seems to, it seems to be that we work a little bit more deliberately um, in that we're not necessarily trying to fill up hours. Um, we're kind of deliberately working on specific things and not that that doesn't happen in the office, but there is a sense of, of filling hours. So uh, Jim, I want to pull you in. You've been quiet and I think Randy and I could probably go on talking for hours and we'd probably end up somewhere talking about that time we cooked black bean burgers in the mountains or that other time a team from Philadelphia decided to do the Inferno sushi challenge in Salt Lake, um, which, which are all good <laughs> stories, but, <laughs> but I wanted to make sure we gave you a chance to uh, share some thoughts as well, Jim. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the one thing, and I, th- th- this is a loaded question because I wanted to see where you guys both go with this one. So I've been thinking a lot about the, the work you've been doing together um, and, you know, we've kind of covered the collaboration part from from a remote perspective, but this isn't necessarily a paid project. Uh, what do each of your companies think about the time that you're spending on it and the uh, the resources and technology you're putting toward it? So I'll, I'll go first. Mine's probably going to be a little less unstructured. Um, but from my perspective, doing doing good and interesting things always pays off, uh, even though I have been. Uh, labeled as being a hippie manager or not always focused on what does this specific thing have to do with the bottom line. I think in part, that's kind of why we've been successful with, with 33 sticks for me, you know, it's an opportunity to work with a good friend and I like working with, with my friends and, and doing interesting projects, but more importantly, it's an opportunity for, for me and for us collectively as a company to stretch our skill sets. These, you know, we're getting into things that are not part of our day to day. And I could very easily stay within my comfort zone, but that's not how we we evolve. And so while, you know, this may not have a direct correlation to revenue right now or this year, as long as we're focused on continuing to mature our, our skills and what we can do and the value we can provide to our clients, ultimately, it's it's going to be beneficial for us. So I, I never turn down a project just because I can't draw a direct, direct line to revenue impact this quarter. And this, this project is no different. Yeah. I mean, on, on my side, um, it's not actually a loaded question because um, this is literally my job, um, which is just so, so awesome. Um, you know, my job is really to be working with the community to understand um, how the MapD product works for other people. Right? It's very easy when you're building a product to, for everyone internally to know how everything works and you know, know the, the exact line in the code base to fix. But you know, we're not sitting in the, the, the customer's seat. And so when they're on site and they're trying to do something and they're saying, well, hey, why doesn't this load? Well, okay, so projects like this, you know, working with Jason, I can't just assume that he knows you know, how memory is distributed across a GPU. We actually have to talk about things and it gives me his perspective of saying, hey, how do I even get started with this? 
that was a, a real question, you know, from, from him to me. And then I realized that, you know, we haven't really done a great job of, of publicizing any of our how-to videos. And so right away, you know, that isn't necessarily a revenue driving action, but it's a very obvious one. It's a very obvious gap that we need to fix as a product company. Um, and then the sort of maybe the second or the next thing about this is with all my collaborations and really trying to push myself, um, it actually makes the, pro- the, the product better. You know, I, I can't say I'm the, the top contributor to bugs, um, but I may be the, not, the, the top non-developer contributor of bug reports. Just by going through and saying, hey, I tried to load this data from, you know, the Utah state government and it doesn't load. Why not? Okay, well, that's a real use case and it helps our developers, you know, deal with things that people are going to see in the wild. Or, you know, I had another fun bug where I tried to load something like 1500 files and each file was maybe 10 gigabytes in size. And... uh our Amazon implementation, you know, ended up failing. And everybody's like, well, what the hell were you doing? I said, well, this is a real question. It's not like I was just messing around. And as it turns out, you know, it it highlighted something that we really didn't account for, which was, um, you know, one of the Amazon Web Services APIs only returns the first 999 results. And so, you know, just by trying weird things, um, ultimately I end up being a, a one man focus group for the, the company, um, but also, you know, just really generating s- excitement for other people, um, showing them, you know, cool and interesting things that they can do. You know, all of this is sort of, it's not a sales job in the sense that I'm actually literally trying to bring money in, but it's very much a sales and marketing type of thing. But in a, I'm sort of broadcasting it outwards and I hope people are interested and I hope I can talk to people and find out what they're interested in, you know, research it, provide um, examples for the community. And so all of it, you know, really just is to develop a buzz, develop a technical superiority, um, you know, of our solution, really just trying to get the story out there for people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. And, and, you know, for me, and I've had this conversation with many, many times before, you know, a good portion of my career has been working with companies where, you know, every bit of effort, every bit of technology that you're using, there needs to be some kind of direct revenue shell. Um, so when I hear of projects like this, there's still that side of me that goes it's like, hmm, wow, I wonder how you know, you got some level of buy-in from you know, the, the, the company to put uh, put your time toward it. Yeah, I mean, I think what's great about, you know, like I said, about my case is it is literally my job description. Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, they're saying we value this. We value that you have a technical background where you can write code and, and behave like some of our users may. You know, at the same time, you know, you're comfortable speaking um, at conferences or, or doing technical writing, you know, via blog posts. And so they're explicitly assigning the value to that of at least whatever they're, you know, paying me as a salary. We're saying we value it that much where we want you to be doing these things. And it's not actually just me. There's a whole team at MAPD um, and we're actually growing as well, um, you know, to, to really, you know, get out there and, and talk to people and really just sort of, you know, push the envelope and think about things that um, would be cool to do and then figure out, you know, how we can make the product do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, how big is MAPD as, uh, as far as employees go? So being remote, it's actually hard for me to say. Um, 
I think I think we're about seventy people right now. Okay. Um, I've only seen maybe thirty or forty at one time in person. So I've I've traveled I travel about every quarter to San Francisco. Um, so they they definitely have uh they they have a floor in one of the f- uh, buildings in the financial district in San Francisco, and the floor is packed. So mm-hmm. I, I've probably seen forty people at once. Um, but I, I think there's maybe about 70 people total. Uh, that, that's a really good size. Yeah, it, it's it's good in that there, there's enough people to be doing a lot of things, but you can still actually reach out to one person mm-hmm. and you know, get time with them without you know causing big bureaucratic headache. Yep. You know, why are you reaching out to them? You know, the, the, their their time is dedicated to this project. You must talk to me, the gatekeeper. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know this for certain, but I don't think we have that many people who are explicitly watching what other people are doing. So, I mean, I, I'm sure we have project managers, but it's not like, hey, you know, are you going to finish this thing with Jason tomorrow? Well, no, I'm not going to because I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. But, we, you know, we don't have like, you know, that other place that you and I worked. There wasn't a project manager for uh, for every single project. Mm-hmm. It's just... You know, there's a, a wide, wide range of autonomy. Um, you know, we hire smart people and just, you know, let them do what they think is right, you know, towards our goals. And, yeah, it, you know, it could be because we're, we're sort of at that smaller size still. But but ultimately, you know, it works out because everybody is really just trying to do the best job that they can, add the most value that they can. Yeah. And, w- and when you have a company that size, you can't necessarily go with the we just need a warm body in the seat. Because when you start going with the we just need a warm body in the seat philosophy, that's when you need a project manager keeping an eye on on every, what everybody's doing. Yeah, and I would think that you guys sort of have the same thing with with your mm-hmm. your billing model that, you know, if, if you guys bid this wrong, you know, you're wasting your time and you're losing money. And if, you know, from the, from the customer's perspective, you know, it costs this much money, right? And you, whether, you know, you don't need to be, you know, asking how many hours exactly did it take because, you know, the customer is not going to be surprised at the end. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. So a, a quick side that I just want to throw in there. Um, I, I, I don't know if I told you both this, but I, I was kind of joking about the the spicy t- uh, sushi challenge that you guys took. But um, Randy had told me this story years ago, and I just remember like laughing and reminiscing about it. And And I think it was at least a year that Jim had worked with us that I finally put two and two together that he was part of that that group that was at the uh, spicy uh, sushi challenge. I just thought it was a funny side. I was the ringleader of that whole adventure. I mean, I like spicy food, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't have gone out of my way. To be honest, the sushi wasn't that that good. Um, You know, and the the pain was even worse, but yeah, it was all Jim's fault. Uh, He's (laughs) such a troublemaker sometimes. I am. That's awesome. Um, well, this is this has been this has been a, a great conversation. Um, I'm looking forward to kind of continuing our, our collaboration. I'll, I'll link up in the notes for this podcast uh, all of the the blog posts that go along with this, and in each one of them, I'm linking the series together so you can follow whatever it ends up being five or or six. Uh, we may end up doing a, a video walkthrough so we can help showcase some of the interactive features of of MapD. But lots of cool stuff there. Uh, hopefully, people are, are finding it interesting. 
appreciate you stopping by um, for this podcast, Randy. It was, it was good to talk about the project and collaboration and really excited to see what you're, you're doing at, at MAPD and definitely appreciate that you are, you and your company were willing to partner with uh, us on this, on this project that we're working on. It's been, it's been a blast. Yeah, same here. I've, I've really enjoyed the project and, uh, you know, once, once we actually provide some, some actual results, I think uh, it's going to be an amazing piece of content. Agreed. Well, thanks for pulling this together, Jim. It's been good chatting with uh, Randy and not that our usual internal group isn't great, but it's good to get some outside perspective in on, on the podcast. So appreciate you pulling this together and, and making this work for Randy and I. Definitely. It was a, it was a really fun conversation. So we'll go ahead and wrap up for here and uh, we'll talk to everybody later. Thanks. All right. Thanks guys. See you later. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to reach us, you can do so by emailing podcast at 33sticks.com or on the web at www.33sticks.com. The 33 Tangents Podcast is a production of 33 Sticks.